0: I'm Satya Doyle-Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast. Something is making its approach to us. Our wars are results of projection, of not being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves. Here we are, how will we hold this, how will we hold the light inside the dark? If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus known as the Red Book. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon in the spring of 2020. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A. We're going to start this week with the next chapter, one of the lowly. It's chapter three of Liber Segundus in this journey, and Carol's going to start us off. If you're looking for it, it's two thirty-two from where we were with kind of pleasure and the feminine. We shift right here into this kind of more of a descent into hell, and Carol will start us maybe with that last line, Carol, of, of the before the this chapter. Mm-hmm but yeah. we're kind of now into engaging with male figures for the next several chapters. And it's, it feels like a shift to me. So, and Carol and I talked a bit about my resistance to that earlier. So we'll explore. <laughs> so here we are with one of the lowly.
1: All right. So uh, above one of the lonely from, from last time, um, quietly look into everything that excites your contempt or rage. Thereby you accomplish the miracle that I experienced with the pale maiden. You give soul to the soulless and thereby it can come to something out of horrible nothingness. Thus you will redeem your other into life. Your values want to draw you away from what you presently are to get you ahead of and beyond yourself. Your being, however, pulls you to the bottom like lead. You cannot at the same time live both since both exclude each other, but on the way you can live both Therefore, the way redeems you. You cannot at the same time be on the mountain and in the valley, but your way leads you from mountain to valley and from valley to mountain. I'm going to come back and talk about this towards the end from the classical Chinese medical point of view of water and how water is most truly like the Tao and that the mountain is the upper source of water and the ocean is the deeper source of water. I'm very struck through this particular chapter about Jung's personal psychic journey through this kind of esoteric understanding about water and the power of water um, without at this point in his journey having encountered Richard Wilhelm, Baines, Li Jing, and the secret of the golden flower. But to me, a lot of this is, is in here. Anyway, you cannot at the same time be on the mountain and in the valley, but your way leads you from mountain to valley and from valley to mountain, Much begins amusingly and leads into the dark hell as levels. So then he encounters, this is on the evening of December 29th, 1913. So let me bring this up because, of course, I had to look. What is happening on the night of December 29th, 1913? So I will come back and I will talk about this. In this night, in the following night, I found myself wandering once more in a homely, snow-covered country. A gray evening sky covers the sun. The air is moist and frosty. Someone who does not look trustworthy has joined me. Most notably, he has only one eye and a few scars on his face. He is poor and dirtily clothed, a tramp. He has a black stubble beard that has not seen a razor for a long time. I have a good walking stick for any eventuality. It's damn cold, he remarks after a while. I agree. After a longer pause, he asks, where are you going? So this is Jung's encounter. He's in his lending library in his descent into banal lending library images of the pale maiden and the lowly fellow. The, this is his next encounter. And, and in the conversation with this guy, the guy says, no, he's not really looking for work. He doesn't, he doesn't, working for a farmer doesn't suit me. That means getting up early in the morning, the work is hard and wages are low. And there's no mental stimulation. The farmers are clods. So Jung thinks to himself. Better to earn, for him to earn his keep than to think of stimulation. And then the guy goes on to talk about that he's going to the cinema and that he's seen a cinema about people that are in a fire that don't get burned up. And that there's a guy who's carrying his head around, a beheaded guy who's carrying his head around under his arm and that the king of Spain has been murdered. And Jung's first reaction is, this guy's, yeah, this guy's a lowlife. And then Jung thinks, wait a minute, is it a blasphemous idea, page 234, to consider the acta sanctorum as historical cinema? And he remembers, anybody who was raised in Bible study class will remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were not burned up in the heavenly fire, and this I didn't know about, but the seal of the city of Zurich, this is in the footnote on footnote 36 on page 234, thirty-four—had there, there were two Coptic priests who were martyred in the 1300s in Zurich, Felix and Regula and their uh, servant Exuperantius. And the legend has it that they, after they were beheaded, they picked up their heads and walked uphill another 40 feet before they died. And then the murder of a tyrant, Jung is recalling his friend, the, the classicist Schiller and Schiller's story of William Tell and the murder, the murder of a tyrant. So he's having to change his mind about what he's encountered. They arrive at an inn. He's quizzing the guy. Jung goes to his part of the inn. The guy goes to the part that he can afford. Jung, now, now we get what I think of as noblesse oblige, that now Jung is thinking like, he needs to pay for this guy's dinner and now it's bedtime and they're, they're rooming next to each other. And here's the lowly one cough, coughing, coughing, coughing. And he realizes that this man is dying and he goes into the room and holds him as he dies and has blood on his hand. know, Satya said, this is one of several murders that, are, that Jung accomplishes in this process. And so Jung says, I look inquiringly at the moon as a witness. So this is what sent me, to, sent me to this idea, because here is the moon rising at the time of this journey. I look inquiringly at the moon as a witness. How does this concern the moon? Has it not already seen worse? Has it not shown a hundred thousand times into broken eyes? This is certainly of no avail to its eternal craters, one more or less. Death? Does it not uncover the terrible deceit of life? Therefore, it is probably all the same to the moon, whether and how one passes away. Only we kick up a fuss about it. With what right? Right. Not only was I struck by Jung's feeling the presence of the moon in the experience, but it leads him to conjectures about the ocean and the moon and about the contemplation of psychic processes. So I'll I'll come back around again to talk about how interesting it is to me in this very small but really potent chapter, this idea of the moon, the ocean, how the ocean is the deepest place and the lowliest place. And I'll talk a little bit if we have time about Chinese medicine's understanding of how the kidney functions in the in the body as an organ of lowliness and surrender of how we have to bow deeply to something in order to be here and achieve enlightenment and not only to achieve, not just to achieve something, but that the actual descent and kotao to the depths makes it possible to rise to the heights, which is the upper source of water. So um, with that, I'll I'll turn it over to Satya, who's we're we're going to talk about individuation. And then if I have time, I'll come back to the water images.
0: Thank you, Carol, so much. Yeah, this section, I want to just, use a couple of really specific Jungian terms, you know, things that Jung developed in terms of his, you know, what we think about as Jungian psychology, all these names came from his journey through the Red Book, right? So we are really witnessing Jung right now encounter his shadow. He specifically, you know, this, this section is really, I think, most simply an, an encounter with Jung's shadow. The last section, which I don't think we ever use this word because I really try to stay away from the jargon as much as possible because they create concepts, I think, for us that that limit our real understanding of what's going on. But he was encountering his anima in the last section that we explored. This is really his shadow. So it's, again, if we stay with gendered stuff, which if anyone knows me, you know, we're wrestling with constantly, but for Jung as a man, his shadow is going to be a male figure. And as a man, his soul figure, his anima figure, will be a female figure. And so you can see him uncovering that. And here he is with a figure who is very similar in a way to figures we've seen. Um, as Carol mentioned, there's a banal quality to him, which feels like the woman he just encountered in the forest, Castle in the Forest. He's, he only has one eye, which feels like the blindness of Salome, there's this reference to decapitation, which is similar again to the Salome image, which shows up all the time. And Jung's understanding fundamentally of the necessity for him to get out of the intellect. So here is this non-intellectual, poor, kind of working class young man, 35-year-old young man, who seems to be dying of consumption. He's coughing up blood. There's all these images that I think are also for me, very evocative of this moment in history. And this is part of what Carol and I were talking about before, but we can feel this kind of quality of, I would call it kind of grief, but like this, this illness of the lungs that we're encountering so much in culture right now. Right. And then the way that that kind of relates to this young man or, you know, 35 year old man, there's this section on 234 that just strikes me that for me, just is exactly fake news. It's kind of this quality of um, a certain sector of our culture right now that, that can't tolerate truth or is simply not interested in truth, science, etc. So 234, Jung is asking him about, um, I think, the cinema, right? Like what he's seen in the, in the movies. Yeah. And he yeah. says, um, did you see anything else like this? And this young man, that he, just he, he's, he's he in the, in the Red Book. Says, yes, I saw how the King of Spain was murdered. And Jung said, but he wasn't murdered at all. And he says, Well, that doesn't matter. In that case, it was one of those damned capitalist kings. At least they got one of them. If all of them were taken out, the people would be free. This section just really strikes me because it feels like it could it feels like it's now. Anytime I turn on the news, this idea that this projection, this profound projection on oh, if if capitalism were just to fall, that we would all be fine. Or if that leader were just to fall, we would all be fine. Or if only one simple change were to be made, everything would be fine. And we wouldn't have to do our own psychological work. And we wouldn't have to grow up and develop as human beings. Because we just can say, oh, if if that leader were killed, or if that um, money were distributed differently, then everything would be fine and the world would go on. Like, it, it feels like a fantasy to me. And Jung's encountering it with this guy who who doesn't really care what the truth is. He's just sort of ambling through his life, right? So part of what just really stands out for me in this section is Jung's discovery of um, or exploration of what he later terms individuation. And individuation is this this idea of fundamentally becoming yourself. It, It doesn't mean to be an individual as separate from society in physical ways. It means to pull one's own consciousness and the sense of becoming out of the swaying and the, and the just beingness of existence. So Jung's encountering his own lowest self here. And in doing that, and there's all these really beautiful lines, I'm going to read a few sections here. Um, But in encountering his shadow in encountering his lowest self, he becomes more of himself in the end. It's it's all of this becoming process. And so there's a lot to say about all of this. Again, I'm going to read a little bit and kind of try to bring us all to these sections. In particular, I think I'll start, I'm going to read most of page 237 and then I'll kind of bounce around and I probably won't tell exactly where I am just because I want to try to weave some of this together, but most of 237 here. And just to feel again, this idea of the shadow the non-intellectual masculine that, that is terrifying to Jung. Again, he felt that in the other in the castle in the forest with the, the young woman who wasn't an intellectual in his conception. Here's this young man who just wants cinematic stimulation and and then this idea of individuation, of becoming. Winter kept on going, and the destitute stood in snow and froze. I joined myself with him since I need him. He makes living light and easy. He leads to the depths, to the ground where I can see the heights. Without the depths, I do not have the heights. I may be on the heights, but precisely because of that, I do not become aware of the heights. I therefore need the bottom most for my renewal. If I am always on the heights, I wear them out and the best becomes atrocious to me. But because I do not want to have it, my best becomes a horror to me. Because of that, I myself become a horror, a horror to myself and to others, and a bad spirit of torment. Be respectful and know that your best has become a horror. With that, you save yourself and others from useless torment. A man who can no longer climb down from his heights is sick and he brings himself and others to torment. If you have reached your depths, then you see your height light up brightly over you, worthy of desire and far off as if unreachable, since secretly you would prefer not to reach it, since it seems unattainable to you. For you also love to praise your heights when you are low and to tell yourself that you would have only left them with pain and that you did not live so long as you missed them. It is a good thing that you have almost become the other nature that makes you speak this way. But at bottom, you know that it is not quite true. At your low point, you are no longer distinct from your fellow beings. I'm going to read that line again. Mm -hmm. At your low point, you are no longer distinct from your fellow beings. You are not ashamed and do not regret it since insofar as you live the life of your fellow beings and descend to their lowliness, you also climb into the holy stream of common life where you are no longer an individual on a high mountain, but a fish among fish, a frog among frogs. Your heights are your own mountain, which belong to you and you alone. There, you are an individual and live your very own life. If you live your own life, you do not live the common life, which is always continuing and never ending, the life of history and the inalienable and ever-present burdens and products of the human race. There you live the endlessness of being, but not the becoming. Becoming belongs to the heights and is full of torment. How can you become if you never are? Therefore, you need your bottom most, since there you are. But therefore, you also need your heights, since there you become. As you drop into the ocean and take part in the current ebb and flow, you swell slowly on the land and slowly sink back again in interminably slow breaths. You wander vast distances in blurred currents and wash up on strange shores, not knowing how you got there. You mount the billows of huge storms and are swept back again into the depths, and you do not know how this happens to you. You had thought that your movement came from you and it needed your decisions and efforts so that you could get going and make progress. But with every conceivable effort, You would never have achieved that movement and reached those areas to which the sea and the great wind of the world brought you. And just a little more here. So that was the very bottom of 238. And this, I'm jumping around a bit now to 239. You want to cross over from being to becoming, since you have recognized the breath of the sea and its flowing that leads you here and there without your ever adhering. You have also recognized its surge that bears you to alien shores and carries you back and gargles you up and down. He who abides in common life becomes aware of death with fear. Thus the fear of death drives him towards singleness. He does not live there, but he becomes aware of life and is happy, since in singleness he is one who becomes and has overcome death. So I'll just say a few more things. I mean, again, for me, the lyricism of this is really beautiful. Um, But I think he speaks to something there that really touches me, which is how often this fear of death that I mean, I remember encountering a young woman was just speaking to her at a coffee shop one day about how she was doing. And she just she was young, but she kept speaking of how terrified she was of dying and that she was just plagued right now by it. And as we spoke about it, this section really drew me back to that, that experience and that conversation I had with her because it was clear she wasn't actually living her life. And she was terrified of dying because she wasn't actually living her own existence. And so the idea of dying too early, like she wouldn't have finished, you know, maybe what we would call karma in the East or something, you know, she, she hadn't lived her life yet. And so for me, this is all this question of individuation of the terror of death at times can be unfinished business that we're not really participating in. We're not wrestling with our own psychology, with our own shadow, with our own soul. And so as Jung is speaking here about this lowly man dying, and again, he has blood on his hands, this this image of blood on his hands, it shows up again in a future section called the sacrificial murder showed up with Siegfried before that Jung is participating in some form in the, in the death and murder and processing of his own psychological material. And he's in it. I mean, it's all part of what's happening, but he's trying to, again, what he would call individuate, which is become himself. And by becoming himself, he separates not in an egoistic sense Um, And not physically, you know, it's not necessarily a hermetic life. It's becoming his own person and how that separates him then, you know, from from the crowd and the everyone. So, so Carol, I'll turn it back to you. That's sort of my deep dive into these stories here.
1: Well, I'm just going to come back around to to a central image in it and talk about land and sea, really. Mm -hmm. And uh, on page 238, To be that which you are is the bath of rebirth. That's just what you were saying. To become yourself. In the depths, being is not an unconditional persistence, but an endlessly slow growth. You think you're standing still like swamp water, but slowly you flow into the sea that covers the earth's greatest deeps and is so vast that firm land seems only an island embedded in the womb of the immeasurable sea. So one of the, um, as I was thinking about all of this, I'm gonna share an image from Ajit Mukherjee's book on Tantra. The first time I read this chapter, one, one of the lowly, and I read this phrase, firm land an island embedded in the womb of an immeasurable sea. I remembered this image from, um, from this tantric, tantric art book. And, um, and again, I was thinking about water and the quality of water. And what Jung is talking about here is a kind of deep inner trust in um, going to the deepest place, in going to the lowest place, which will take you to the highest place, but going to the lowest place to find this that's embedded in the immeasurable sea, the land that's embedded in the immeasurable sea. So for those of you who are familiar with Portland's National University of Natural Medicine and the classical Chinese medical program there, Dr. Freuhoff has um, a classical Chinese medicine website in which he, periodically posts lectures on the spirit of the points. And so I just finished re-watching the spirit of the points of the kidney, of the the organ the kidney, because in uh, thinking of the body as a microcosm of the macrocosm, the organs are like seasons. And in the same way that the zodiac signs are like seasons... And that they're also like the metabolism of the year about how the year comes into being, how matter turns into chi and chi comes back into matter, this idea of form and energy, form and energy, form and energy. So I was really struck in this by this idea of, of that conundrum, that, that the process of becoming that something is rising out of something that is infinite and moving, like water, like the ocean, but that out of that comes form. Which took me back to a really wonderful author, a woman named Sarah Allen, who has written this wonderful book called The Way of Water and Sprouts of Virtue. So I just want to read a little bit, because I think that this is part of what Jung, Jung this whole piece on flow and flow into the sea, that your soul goes to the moon, the moon governs the tides, That um, and this idea that to be like water is implicit in this. And so Sarah Allen says, if one assumes that common principles govern the natural world and the human mind, then ethical values can be discussed by reference to natural principles. The fondness of Chinese philosophers for analogy is well known. And the use of analogy is often dismissed as a rhetorical advice. However, once we recognize this assumption that common principles govern the natural and human worlds, we can see that argument by analogy has a more serious purpose. The passage to begin, in which Confucius praises water... Confucius' interest in water as a means of understanding the principles of human behavior is well attested. According to the Analects, Confucius, standing by a river, said, What passes is perhaps like this. Day and night, it never lets up. You know, so this idea of becoming, of not holding yourself in separateness, but moving with something. Another passage from the Analects tells us that Confucius said, The intelligent find joy in water, whereas the humane find joy in mountains. The intelligent are lively, the humane still. The intelligent are happy, the humane long-lived. Moreover, according to a further passage from Lamentius, Confucius urged his disciples to take notice of the wisdom inherent in the nursery rhyme. The water of the Kanglong River is clear, so we may wash our capstrings. The water of the Kanglong River is dirty, so we may wash our feet. Observing that water takes the principle upon itself, just as men invite insult upon themselves. According to Mencius, there's an art to looking at water. The tradition that water was a source of knowledge for Confucius is continued in the Zhunzi, where we are told that that gigon inquired of confucius why is it that when a gentleman sees a great river he always gazes at it and confucius replies water which extends everywhere and gives everything life without acting is like virtue its stream which descends downward twisting and turning but always following the same principle is like rightness it's bubbling up Never running dry is like the way, the Tao. Where there is a channel to direct it, its noise is like an echoing cry and its fearless advance into a hundred-meter valley like Valor. Used as a level, it is always even, like law Fa. Full, it does not require a ladle, like correctness. Compliant and exploratory, it reaches to the tiniest point, like perceptiveness. That which goes to it and enters into it is cleansed and purified like the transformation of goodness. And twisting around 10,000 times but always going eastward, it is like will. That is the reason that when a gentleman sees a great river, he will always look upon it. And um, so this idea of the, the finite in the eternal, of the finite in the infinite, But that the way you arrive at the finite is by going low, by doing a kotau. And image number 64 in the Red Book, which is where he's beginning to be involved with Izdabar, there is a a picture of him, of, of the figure prostrating itself, which is the classic kata where you are on the floor and you bend down and you put your head on the floor so that your kidneys are receiving the upper source of water, which is heaven, and bringing you down into the lower source of, source of water so that you're essentially storing qi in your kidneys, that, that it's where your vitality comes from, that lowering yourself is actually where your vitality comes from. So this is a, an, an, an analogy, but I was, as I said, I was just so struck by this whole passage where Jung, with, which is going to take him eventually into the I Ching and the Secret of the Golden Flower, that, he's ha- that his experience here and his writing about it and his clarity about it as a, as a process of the psyche anticipates later development on his own part, not only the idea of of the becoming of things, but of finding other cultures and other ways that have held it in non-Western, non-psychological ways.
2: Yeah.
0: Carol, thank you. I'm really just, just struck by the, the idea of renewal again and the, and the use of encountering, you know, it's part and parcel to encountering the shadow that it feels terrible for us to do it individually. You know, each of us individually, and this is the individuation that no matter how many people on the planet have encountered their shadows, we have to each do it again on our own. And then again, each day or each week or each month or each year or whenever. And part of what Jung is really speaking to in this is if you, and again, you think of this as the midlife crisis or the kind of classic story of, um, you know, a man in his 40s or 50s who has reached every height possible and has become intolerable to his family as much as he is, you know, presenting a good face to the world, right? Uh, that, that sense of kind of the intolerableness that Jung speaks to in this passage And then he falls, there's a big fall down to the depths. And what Jung is speaking to for his own renewal, and again, this beautiful invitation that we all learn bits of ourselves from his journey, that it requires this constant engagement with the depths and the lowly, not just the depths, like the spirit of the depths, but the lowly, the prostration down, right? Um, That if we can engage with these shadow aspects of ourselves, then there is some potential in that act like composting for renewal you know versus the avoidance of it and again i mean i can tell you this week like encountering my own shadow this week and last week we're all in this you know carol you can speak to this whether it's the retrogrades or god you know the, the the new moon on friday this is not easy stuff it is not living is not easy stuff Um, being alive is not easy. It's just fundamentally not easy. And encountering our shadows is a fundamentally gross, uncomfortable, painful, terrifying process. Again, there's some courage in this of just the reminder, I think, that, that, oh, by participating, this is the path of individuation. It's not the, if I only sit on my cushion and breathe, and we'll get to this because the next chapter is the anchorite. And it's Jung really wrestling with this idea of the old Christian story that, um, you know, of, of what the hermits might be missing. And this is part of Jung's journey through this. Um, you know, that, that maybe it is not um, by in any, in any way avoiding kind of the lowest or the nature or the anima or the shadow, all of this stuff, but it is by engaging with it, with our full-bodied selves, personally and collectively, that we find renewal. And this creative renewal and intellectual renewal and emotional and sexual, all the good stuff, right? There's renewal there.
1: So, a very small personal detour. Jung's journey has had such profound implications for my own. I think all of us that continue to meet here are each of us is on our own journey. Um, For me, encountering not the pale feminine, but encountering the masculine. I I worked for many many years in corporate life, and I I grew up my Mars. I felt like I, in, in terms of the culture, in terms of performance and productivity, place, accomplishment, name, the island in the immeasurable sea, that I had I had got somewhere. Mm-hmm. And coming back around again to Jung and seeing Jung's courage and facing what is hard for him to face made it possible for me to realize that something was after me. Mm-hmm. And it took the form of someone being after me. But initially, in the way where you begin to understand how projection works, something's noticing you. (laughs) And you're noticing it's noticing you. It won't leave you alone. So it's like, go away. And it, it was such a strong go away for me that I got out a Taoist cloaking symbol and put it over the picture. Go away. And I don't want you to see me. So it's like, well, so why does it keep? So and as we started in on this again, it's like, okay, take the cloaking symbol down and get into a dialogue with this. You have an example before you of how to do it. You know how to do this. You've done active imagination before, aided by a wonderful group of women for many, many years. So do this. So it is um, astounding to me the, the what the dialogue is yielding up, and it's um, shocking to me. So far, there's no blood, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that there might not be. And um, and so I think about not transcendence or transformation, but wholeness, and also what I think of in a way of not projecting the mess into the outer world. That that as long as what I can't own about myself gets projected out, that it's like nitrogen oxide and particulates in the air. (laughs) It pollutes things. And that a part of the opportunity of this time of turning inward of the retrogrades of the contraction of the planets in Capricorn, very similar to Jung's time, also very similar to London in Plague and Fire in 1666, very similar to 1304. You know, we, the human race has been here before, but this opportunity, which for us it is, we're not on the front lines dealing with people who are deathly ill we're not driving ambulances, we're not intubating people, we're not weeping, you know, and so this is a great opportunity for clarity, for for clarification, and um, it's kind of the spirit in which my own journey in this has been, and and doing this with you, and doing with everybody present, has been really profound for me, and which leads me to suggest that um, our friend Anne has some very interesting connections to make about Alcoholics Anonymous. And Anne, I don't know if you're prepared to talk about this, but but this idea of renewal, of going, of hitting bottom of going to the lowest place and of coming to a relationship with the immeasurable sea. I wonder if, we, since we have time, if you would talk a little bit about that.
0: Yes, I'll, I'll try to be very brief. Anne, I'm going to introduce you briefly, but I also just want to say, so this is Anne Carroll. For those who aren't here, we, we met through this format, but she's our, our resident translator now. And we were in dialogue with her over email through the weeks but but this week um, we asked specifically i think about the the translation of lowly was what was interesting to me is just how is that how is Jung using that term? what was the original term? What are other versions of this because it's really getting to the root of understanding what he's wrestling with in this right there's i think in a footnote, the word rogue" was used at one point and and he blocked that out but and then shared this whole piece about Jung's influence on Alcoholics Anonymous and the very creation of it. So, Anne, I I want to invite you, we've got a little time, but to not necessarily rush through it. I mean, you know, because it's such an important piece of Jung's history, and it sounds like you have a really beautiful, strong relationship with this material. So I invite you to really, yeah. yeah. Yes, for me, this
3: this, uh, section was extremely powerful. I also have to add that my husband's, calling in life is with the homeless he's created a, a shelter here for the homeless and so they're very very much a part of his life you can imagine the discussions that have gone on during this week many many family members in AA. son who struggled with heavy drugs i've been in Al-Anon for 20 years so i'm very familiar with the miraculous power the way that it works which is very much what you've been talking about this morning. But I'll I'll start off by saying that the secular approach is to say, how can I fix them? I come across the one-eyed, rogue is too nice a word, lowly is much too nice a word. Nidrige really means down and out, down. And I was thinking of some of the words we have in English to describe that. The worst is the scum of the earth. It's a terrible phrase, but the power in this for me and my admiration for Jung went up a hundredfold if that was possible, is that he's really saying, look at it. Look, can not are they salvageable, not can I fix them. The key phrase that he said was to an alcoholic patient, I cannot fix you. This is not. This is nothing that psychiatry or medicine can do anything about. Only a spiritual, and he uses the word conversion, will be able to cure this. Out of that, I won't go into the the whole thread of it, but out of that, Alcoholics Anonymous grew. It's now in 108 countries and over 2 million people, and for a dollar a week, that's all you need, and if you don't have a dollar, that's fine. But... It's two basic principles. One is honesty. It's really individuation at a dog shit level is what it is. Incredible honesty about what took you to that place of degradation. Not blaming anybody else, but confronting the shame, confronting the pain, confronting the abasement, and through that, coming to a place where you all can hold it together. But the second principle is without a spiritual turning around, without a power greater than yourself, and it doesn't matter what you call that power greater than yourself, you will not go through, you will not have the courage to change. You will not have the inner transformation that needs to happen in order for the addiction to fall away. And Jung uses the phrase, the spirit against the spirit. In other words, he says, alcohol, the word for alcohol is spiritus, but that it can go to its poisonous aspect, which is, of course, the calling it the lowly one is awfully nice. Calling it, it's really the down and outness. And I, I do want to, stre- to stress that because I think it's an element of this of this particular verse that we don't want to lose. That the only way out of that, as I said, is actually a spiritual path. It's a very, very difficult practice because it means looking at your shame, your guilt, your loneliness, your lowliness is what I mean to say. And what Jung is saying is, can I look at that in myself? Can I look at that in myself and not run from it, not avoid it, not escape it? And any of you, I mean, just look at how we react at this corner when we come to somebody who's homeless, sitting there, big, fat, ugly, old clothes, tattered. If I have profoundly gone to the depths in myself that I can find that within me I can be with that person not try to fix them not try to rescue them not try to avoid them and what that does is gives them dignity now I am going to tell a little bit of a personal story here and then maybe that's everything that I want to say about well and then I'll come back to the founder of AA writing to Jung two years before Jung's death to say, you are the foundation stone of, of this fellowship. But anyways, I had a child who struggled in the era of punk rock with very, very heavy drug addiction. It went on a long time, the most difficult thing in my life without any doubt. He knew homelessness, He knew being picked up and taken to jail. He knew everything that's being talked about here in this, the lowly one. None of it's pretty. I don't even, I can't even hear most of it. It's so painful to listen to as it's once child. But we were once walking in New York City after he's been sober for 20 years. We were walking in New York City and every time we would come to somebody a beggar or a homeless person sitting by the side of the road. He had a way of speaking to them that I couldn't do in a hundred years. He talked to them like they were his brother. He knew where they came from. He'd been there himself. He didn't have to say that. It was in the tone of his voice. And the he knew whether to give them $5, not, but it was more, I've Without saying that, I've been there, I understand it, I've gone to those depths, how are you, brother? And the minute that would happen, you could feel this extraordinary spark of dignity happen. It was a mutual dignity, everybody. It would affect me, it would affect my own dignity. And that's the real deep spiritual dimension of being able to own, to have the depths the experience of the depths in oneself and I think that's all AA tries to do is to give those whose lives are down there a space of honesty truth-telling and spiritual surrender that brings about the possibility for them of individuating at whatever level of becoming who they are and Over 20 years, if I could tell you the number of times I've seen it happen, it always feels like a miracle. And it always feels like a miracle when somebody takes back their own dignity, which is the opposite of Nidraka. So I understand Bill W. writing to Jung and saying, thank you. Without you, this fellowship would never have happened. Thank you, Anne.
0: And I'm so, just so valuable to bring in, in such a personal way, this uh, other piece of Jung's history and of this journey. And I'm also just really struck by how all three of us have, in trying to say lowly today, have said lonely or loneliness. Because, you know, there's so much of that in this for me of, and, and we know now with the neuroscience and more research into addiction, of how fundamentally... Addiction often comes from a fundamental experience of separateness and loneliness. Yeah. 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 And, and a lack of relatedness or a lack of sense of being um, deeply in relationship with each other or with other mammals or with nature, that sense of separateness. And so just beautiful to me, that kind of connection between loneliness and, and the, the lowly in this word. Thank you, Anne. Carol, should we? Q&A. Okay, guys. Hi, Francis.
3: Hi, thank you. Carol, you shared a chart at the very beginning but didn't speak to it. Was there something to be
1: said from that? Well, here, let me bring it back up again. What I'm looking at here is in the way when, when Jung is describing uh, his state, the moon is so powerful in this. Immediately, I think, there's the moon in, on this date. And here is the moon in Aquarius, conjunct his Uranus, so it's opposite his sun. And I also was really interested um, in in the planet Neptune. It's square the planet Neptune, which is the sea, essentially. Neptune is the, the mythological name for the oceanic. So I'm so struck by the moon, the ocean, the going to the depths and the essentially again, as we've been talking about in the past, what continues to happen is that Jung is is coming across express things that are expressively feminine in a man's life and a man's story, the mist the mysteries of the moon, and the mysteries of the tide and and in a way, if you think about the moon as what is repeatable and expectable, this entire this wonderful rhythm but it also, the ocean has anomalies like tsunamis. So this idea of the immeasurable sea, it, of this literally in the horoscope, it's dawning on him, it's shining on him, him the moon is shining on him. And I, I, without reading German, reading the whole passage, especially, especially reading, seeing after he's gone to bed and he hears the coughing, you can feel it lit by moonlight. You can feel this very dark, you know, sort of like 18th century dark printmaking environment in which everything is illuminated by the moon, which is not consciousness. It's not. It's not sunlight. It's moonlight, and that's the reason. I, I, not only have I wanted to look at all of these of these charts because all of this is happening in a space of like a month. You no, know, we we really haven't gone much farther from the mid from mid November to here we are. At this particular um, point, we're, we're at um, the end of December of 1913. And there's a lot more intense 12th house dives that's coming up, including the encounter with the Anchorite and the meeting of Isdubar and the astrology of the events themselves and what it brings up for Jung. Um, without him having an astrological language, as an astrologer, I'm just very struck by it, you know, so... That's a long-winded answer to your question, Francis, but it's like, there's the moon. It's like, okay, where's the moon in the chart? Oh, rising. Okay. (laughs) It's illuminating the scene for him, both literally in the environment and psychically in the experience.
4: Thank you. Steve, hi.
5: Hi. Yeah, I I was really struck by um, how important the, the, the factor of empathy is in this whole story. In 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 the sense of of Joseph Campbell who's somebody else who's who's was a student of Jung, obviously, you know, in in his work he talks about how in the classic fairy tales there is this moment of you know the the hero or the princess on the journey is empathizing and is offering help to these 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 wounded creatures along the path with no expectation of repayment, and and you really see that in in this story, and you see Jung kind of finding these redemptive qualities in in um what's in what's happening with this that that jung is expressing this kind of like abhorrence of of popular culture but then he's going you know well wait a minute you know this this guy is talking about going to the cinema and seeing like oh the the men levitating and the, and the things of the fire it, it is essentially like you know it, it, they're essentially superhero movies and horror movies, this seems to be what he's talking about, but then seeing that there's a spiritual dimension to it. And in the story of the the King of Spain being murdered, well, I was really struck by and kind of puzzled by this this part where he's talking about the Wilhelm Tell. Not, not a word more, dare I say, Wilhelm Tell, the work by Friedrich Scheller. The man is standing right in the thick of it in the stream of a heroic story, one who announces the murder of the tyrant to a sleeping people. And I was struck so much by how this mirrors the story of Jung and Siegfried and, and, and him being called to be, you know, like you have to like take down Siegfried, both as this kind of your own hero, like kill your own hero, and also like how damaging this kind of hero is to the German culture. I was just wondering if you, what your thoughts were about him in his shadow, kind of like seeing this reflection of his, of his story.
0: Thanks, Steve. You've, I mean, I think you're wrestling with what we're we are wrestling with. You know, it's all there. I mean, all these different figures, and mm-hmm. um, and I think the empathy. I mean, just to speak to that is critical. I mean, it it it's the attitude of psychological work. You know, that mm-hmm. is so fundamentally core to the Red Book, but it's fundamentally core for all of us. Is is you know Jung's this this classic phrase of Jung's. Um, something to the effect, I'm not going to quote it directly, but you know, he says the face that you turn towards the unconscious is the face that the unconscious turns back to you. Right. So if you turn your face to the unconscious saying you're gross, I can't stand you. I am disgusted with you. Then, you know, you will get a similarly disrespectful and rejecting uh, response. But if there is an attitude of empathy, as you say, um, and connection and curiosity and witnessing then there will be more gentleness in response and you know the fairy tales it's so much about the receptivity it's it's often the dumbling hero that the d u m m l i n g the dumbling hero that is just operating on what looks to his brothers often as stupidity but that hero in these fairy tales is operating on this kind of sweet instinct. He's just in, he's just talking to the birds because the birds are talking to him or he's he's saving the ants from the water because the ants are drowning and he doesn't want the ants to drown, right? Mm-hmm. So he's just really participating in this way. There's something very sweet about all that, you know, and, and that the response is, is tremendous receptivity, um, you know, often in these stories, right? Later down the line, the ants help him, the birds help him, whomever, mm-hmm. right? It's always that that re- that return. So I think, you know, you're really, for me, drawing out a really important piece here of just the attitude that we all take, even when we're scared or disgusted, it's you take a beat, maybe it's a week after a terrible dream that grossed you out, or, you know, maybe it's a month after you did something stupid, and you regret it, and you can't get over the regret. It's you can take a beat, you can take as many beats as you need, but that you come back to saying, okay, I have to look at you. To Anne's point, this, this all, it ends up being, of course, the exact same thing in the external world then, right? It's, if, if we turn that attitude towards our own unconscious, it alters or mirrors the, the, the attitude we take towards the lowly in society, quote unquote, you know, I mean, that's a weird thing to even say, but, or to women, as we've been exploring, or to, you know, let's call it the unevolved masculine or whatever. I mean, all these different things that trigger us in culture and there's, we're all in it. Right. But if we keep trying to take that receptive attitude, something starts to shift socially as well.
1: Yeah. Um, And I I think that's what he's saying here. Descend, surrender, open, connect. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I think empathy is, you know, I think about Marshall Rosenberg's work and, I think about the about the constellation work and all of the kind of work that is being done these days around that. The other thing that I, I that is just a sort of auxiliary uh, observation for me, I think about how images present themselves, and that for a very very long time in spiritual life, images were not considered to be spiritually even allowed maimonides said to the Hebrews, you cannot picture the divine. The, the golden calf it was a false idol, that images keep you away from the divine, keep you away from the connection with the divine. In Islam, there is still a proscription against uh, images. I'm very struck in this process, as, as we will see, as Jung deepens, as he descends, opens and receives to Satya's point about things starting to show themselves to you and literally what you w- uh, open up to is what they'll is the face they'll show you is that we'll n- now we're getting not just the written images but there is a flood of images there's a remarkable book by a man named David Freedom called the power of image where he t- discusses at some length the evolution of religion of a formal religion and worship going from the pr- perspective of the forbidding of images to the welcoming and the manipulation of images including healing images and you know fam- famous altar pieces and you know the kind of the history of western art to a certain extent but i think this idea of what wants to show itself to us is that and the idea of the image presenting itself to us requires that, first of all, the noticing and then the welcoming of it. And I think sometimes that's hard to invite in.
0: The worst. <laughs> sometimes it's fun, but in this, in this yeah. chapter, what we're exploring today, you know, yeah. So yeah. Our, own, our own shadows are, you know, again, by, by design or, you know, part and parcel, they're, it's not comfortable. It's not easy stuff. So,
1: well, I want to show this image. This is a, this is a, this is a, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves in the red book, but this is an image of a Kotao. And this is a, a, a Jung is uh, footnotes this image. It's image number 64 in the red book where this is a, this is an obeisance to Agni, the Lord of fire. It's a, it's a Hindu fire ritual to invoke spirit. And, I, I was quite struck by it. I thought, you know, when when did when did these images really when did these the face of this really begin to present itself? And we're we're getting into the part of his journey where this it, it pictures itself to him, and that it's different than language. That there's something about the descent and the opening that invites the image.
3: Could I say one one yes. thing you were saying before. I think one of the amazing things about finding the depth if I can find the depth of brokenness and despair my own abasement in myself what I pass beyond is the realm of judgment and it's literally igniting a spark of dignity it's because I've gone past by going to those depths I've passed beyond my own judgment and thereby what happens is that the heart breaks open literally breaks open Um, there once again you have the image of fire And that's compassion. It's not whether I can do something, but whether I can be. And I can't be with another as long
0: as this judgment. And I think, I mean, again, just to Steve's point there about what empathy is, is that sense of knowing with another, of, of really, you know, even beyond compassion, I think in the definition, right? It's the knowing of the experience that connects us to each other. Yeah,
3: and that challenges us every time we personally come up to somebody who's homeless.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Anne. Okay, we have lots bubbling now, which is always beautiful. So we're going to um, move through this.
2: Lori? I want to just thank Anne, because I have a son that has a similar journey, who's still living with me. And my neighbor the other day goes, I feel so sorry for you. And I said, don't feel sorry for me. So when I hear Anne speak, uh, she gives me dignity around the journey. And this morning I looked at my son and I said, the light inside the dark, you know, it, it's, it's such a... There's so much I can't even speak to it. But I will tell you this, that the Red Book now sits on our dining room table because my son wants it there. So it's so amazing how our interaction Uh, provide space for healing to me it's just beautiful so thank you thanks Lori
0: that's beautiful and Anne's bowing to you Um, yeah
2: and I it's just special I can't say as much as I'm feeling but it's pretty amazing to witness the changes
0: thank you I mean really this is it right it's if it When Jung says, um, you know, to the founder of AA about, about that relationship between spirit and the spirits, right? He's making this language analogy between the spirits of alcohol and the spirit. It's for me, it's, it's really, you know, it's spirit. It's the higher self, but it's also the ensouled bodied self. Right. And that if, again, if we are lonely, if we are not feeling in relationship with each other or with the planet or with mammals or the world, if we don't feel loved and we don't know our capacity to be loved, if we don't know our own depths, then the world is the wasteland. That is the wasteland. And, and at that point, why wouldn't you drink? Why wouldn't you drink yourself to death? Why wouldn't you stay with heroin that brings you to a sense of extraordinary elation or openness? Because there's at least there's a sense of beauty there, you know. And so for us, I think to just anyone who doesn't know that experience of the wasteland to understand that level of emptiness that would drive anyone to seek spirit in something anything that gives you spirit right so for me beautiful Lori, just to feel how us relating to the red book or jung's journey through the red book can can support in some of that okay kathleen
4: hi thank you i um i just wanted to share a little personal part too that fits in here when i was 25 my husband Died by overdosing on cocaine. I don't know how intentional it was, but it was, it's what happened. And um, I got into therapy and I dove into those depths and I really understood. There was a while where I was scared to go way deep into it. I thought I'd never come out. But then I realized when I went deep into it, then I could go also into my joy at, to the same degree. Like this is the midline, you know, like the. As deep as I dove, then I could go into my joy and I'm a very joyous person, but I wasn't during that time I tell you <laughs> well, I had never made that connection, but i can I love saying hi to homeless people it's such a wonderful little connection and um I never put that together, so I thank you so much, Anne, for that understanding mm-hmm. and i and Lori, I wish you all it's a it's a huge journey you're on and i really appreciate
2: it thank you,
0: thank you. and just feeling the way your hands i mean for folks maybe who can't see you but this that descent below and then the rising above you image with your hands right yeah. and again that connection right so mm-hmm. as above so below this constant connection and again whether it is projection out into the world or dealing with our own stuff it's all the same journey you know back to an unsold experience with each other Thank you. Thank you. Carol, any other thoughts? Maybe we can just wait a minute, too, to see if anyone else, you know, anyone else has things showing up for them today. It's feeling quite personal for folks today. Helene, is that yes. how you pronounce it? Yeah, well, yes. or it's, That's fine. I, I just, well, apart from just thanking you and everything, but I, I wanted to know if when you were mentioning this thing about not showing images in the religious or that,
1: we were not able to show the divine. How do you feel about that? (laughs) Well, I know that uh, from my own small studio practice, it's the hardest thing you'll ever do. (laughs) You know, is it a drawing of a leaf or is it an explosive, you know, force? It's And everybody comes to it in a different way. And, you know, certainly uh, there's piles of books on aesthetics and, religion and art. I I think, you know, as long as it's personal, I remember when my own grandson was, we were in the Valley of the Shadow when he was 14. And I got a bee in my bonnet that I wanted to be in Notre Dame in Paris on Christmas Day to ask the great mother for help. Because we were out of answers. And I will never forget the rose window and the light and the the yes to my prayer and the illumination that came out of it so it's not always i think about the great great heartfelt craft of hundreds and hundreds of anonymous people to build notre dame who built something to the divine and that uh, I know it's not everybody's experience there, but it was mine. It's why I thought of going there. The first time I went there, I thought I, I'm, I need to go there for this kind of help. So in, you know, the Chapelle de la Dame in Enchamp in France has this extraordinary, extraordinary presence of spirit from from the incredible devotion that gets poured into it. It's not just the form itself. It's how the form holds the incredible devotion. So, I don't know. I'm kind of all over the place, Alan. I don't know if that answers your question. You know, it's, it's, well, I, think I mean, it's what in what a way it's trying to
4: do.
3: Well, maybe it, 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 it,
1: it's actually what your image is showing. It's all over the place and it's beautiful. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's got the colored dots and it's got the sea and it's got the cloud yeah. and it's got above and below and it's got everything in it. Yeah. So well, I, was,
1: this is, I just thought it was very cold. beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. It touched you. me. Yeah. No, thank you.
0: Thank you. We have one more question. I'm just going to say too, because we need to remember this, I think. Um, we have blind participants. And to honor Salome's blindness too, we're going to need to start really describing images because I want to make sure that our blind participants really are feeling what we're also seeing. And just honoring, again, this kind of spirit of blindness and all of this and, and what, where that takes us. So both both really bringing forward the images for those of us that are artists and very image oriented and for folks who, who can't see them. So, okay. And Randy, one more here and then we're going to end. Welcome. Hi. Hi,
6: I'll just be brief. I mean, this has been a fantastic session in particular and somehow the, the comment that keeps coming up to me is a way that we can, uh, all these stories can be encapsulated in a, um, In a very light, enjoyable manner that I don't know if any of you are familiar with the TV show, the kids show Avatar, The Last Airbender. And my daughter's on her second binge. That, along with Miyazaki, was what she grew up with. But it is very much all of these Jungian stories. Um, But more importantly, it represents the hero's journey and a way of interacting and fighting the good fight and human interaction that is just not completely shown in other stories. And so I think it's a, um, as these, you know, it's a way of looking at we understand that they get into the spirits of the depths is a kind of dark, hard route. This definitely shows that it is a hard route, but it's somehow enjoyable um, and more encouraging. And the characters show a tremendous amount of vulnerability and cooperation and and I think as a telling example of our current spirit of Times, it gives me hope that it's the number one show on Netflix right now.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Randy. Thank you, Randy. Awesome. Good, all. Next week, we're going to take a journey with Jung to an anchorite in the desert. And Jung's experience of this anchorite uh, alone in the desert, engaged with his spiritual books day after day, year after year. And we will see you then for that portion next week. Thanks, Carol. Thank you, Satya. See you all next Sunday. Bye-bye. Many thanks to our incredible podcast team. To Anne Carroll for German translation and soulful insights. To our producer, Ayol Alvis, for turning this rough audio into a podcast to Kelly Swenson for your dedicated work behind the scenes, to Haley Hendricks for the incredible podcast music, and to Ray Davis for our beautiful art. You're all brilliant and talented, and we're very grateful. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome Podcast.